God's joke. Okay? Well, let's take our Bibles and open up to Luke chapter 17. We're moving through the Gospel of Luke. I wish I could say at a rapid pace. <laughs> But we're heading toward a journey. We're heading toward the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? And in chapter 16, which we just concluded, we saw Jesus told a story of a rich man who fared sumptuously on a daily basis and a beggar named Lazarus who was laid at his gate who desired to have the crumbs off of the rich man's table, but he had to fight the dogs for the crumbs. And Jesus told that story for a reason. If you look at chapter 16 and verse 14, chapter 16 and verse 14, he says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard these things. Jesus had been talking about how we're to give money to the poor. And when the Pharisees, who were the lovers of money, heard these things, they mocked Jesus. They derided him. So he immediately goes into a story about the rich man and Lazarus. He said, you know, having riches is not all it's... Uh, made out to be. It only lasts a lifetime. And uh, then you face the next lifetime without riches. And he tells about a rich man who died and lifted up his eyes being in torment. And there was that beggar Lazarus who fought with the dogs for the crumbs of the table, reclining at Father Abraham's table, reclining against Abraham's bosom, having a tremendous feast. And suddenly the tables were turned. So Jesus talks about that. Now we see a change in the audience. Look at chapter 17 and verse 1. Then he said to his disciples. Now notice, in 1614 he was speaking to the Pharisees. Now he speaks to his disciples. Now let me set this up for you for a moment. Let me give you the setting. Jesus is heading from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem in the south where he will face his death. The crowds don't realize that this is what's happening. They all think they're heading toward Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. And there are tremendous masses of people that are following Jesus. He's a teacher. He's a rabbi. He's a miracle man. And they're all following him, wanting to, they're hanging on to his every word. This mass of people is divided into two categories. The first are the Pharisees. These are religious people. These are the people that just derided Jesus. Uh, they are pious people. The word Pharisee means pious ones, and these were people who were very pious. Don't think of the Pharisees as evil people. If you do that, you'll make a, a terrible mistake. If the Pharisees were living today, we would say they are the religious right. They were the moral people who upheld the traditional standards of Judaism. And uh, they were very conservative people. So when Jesus comes along teaching radical things, they see that as cultic. So don't think of your Pharisees as outwardly evil. Even though they may have bad motives, they are pretty much very conservative people. And they are exclusivist. They associate with people of their own kind. And they don't like to associate with other people. Now Jesus warned his disciples. He said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. 
And what he was saying is, watch out, don't fall into the trap of the Pharisees, and only associate with people like you. Don't be self-centered, don't be dogmatic, that will get you into trouble. <clears throat> That's not God's way, that is man's way, that is the way of religion, not the way of God. Now, a second group that's following Jesus down to Jerusalem are the disciples. <clears throat> but don't think of the disciples as the apostles. You do that, you make a mistake. Disciples simply means followers. Uh, they are masses of people who are traveling with Jesus out of curiosity. Some out of need. Some need a healing. Some... Uh, need wisdom, and they're hoping that Jesus as a teacher will provide that. And then there are some that are very devoted to Jesus, such as the apostles. But when it says disciples, it simply means the great masses of people who want to learn from Jesus. These are not all saved. Okay, All these people are not saved. But what we would say is they are looking to Jesus for answers. In this group that are called, in a generic sense, disciples, are the religious and the irreligious. They are the religious and the outcast. There are the sick and there are the healthy. There are the rich and there are the peasants. And all these people are looking to Jesus as their rabbi. And these are the masses that are identified in verse 1 as disciples. Okay? So you'll see that there is a distinction. So let's look at how Jesus addresses these followers. Then Jesus said to the disciples, It is impossible that offenses... Let me read that again. It is impossible that no offenses should come. Or to put it in a positive way, offenses surely are going to happen. Offenses are surely going to happen. Offenses are things that cause people to stumble. Okay, He said there's going to be a lot of things that cause people to stumble. There will be a lot of offenses that will happen. And then look what he says. But, in the middle of verse 1, But woe to him through whom they do come. He pronounces judgment. He says, look, there are going to be a lot of things that are going to offend people. A lot of offenses are going to happen. A lot of things are going to cause people to stumble. A lot of obstacles are going to come. But make sure you're not the one that's responsible for causing people to be offended. Make sure you're not the ones that bring offense upon people. <clears throat> Don't you be the cause. Look at verse 2. It would be better for him, for that person who causes an offense, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, then that he should offend one of these little ones. Now, he's not talking about children. In the context, when he says, it would be better to have a stone thrown around your neck and you thrown in the sea than you offend one of these little ones, he's talking about little people. He's talking about nobody. Remember Jesus talked about the least of these? Huh? That's who he's talking about. Make sure you don't come along and you offend the down and outers. That you offend those that are disenfranchised. That you offend those that are poor. That you offend those that 
uh, have no one to stand up for them. Don't you be responsible for that. That's the little ones that he's talking about here, the helpless people. People like Lazarus the beggar. Don't you be like the rich man was toward Lazarus the beggar. You should have been reaching out with a helping hand. Not kicking him. Not causing him to stumble. Not saying, get away from my gate. Go sit next to somebody else's gate and beg. That's what he's saying. Now, see, in the context, when you read chapter 17, you have to read it in the context. There are some commentators, it's going to be very interesting, I'll tell you this, it's interesting when I study during the week. And by the way, somebody said, oh, you've studied this a thousand times. This is the first time I've gone through Luke. I've never studied Luke before. I'm not giving you old stuff here. I'm giving you new stuff. I surprise myself every week with something. Many of the conservative commentaries say that this passage, verses 1 through 10, Jesus just gives four or five teachings and not related to anything. It doesn't even make sense when you come up with that. You'd be surprised at people that say things like that. He's just going to give them four instructions. They're sort of irrelated, but Luke just decides to throw them in here. That doesn't make sense. The context is the story of the prodigal son and the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And when you understand the context, you'll understand the teaching. Don't be like the rich man was toward Lazarus. If you do that, you're in trouble. Who are the offenders? Well, the offenders are the rich people. The offenders are the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees? They complained because Jesus did what with poor people? He ate with them. Don't be like them. Don't be like the rich man. That's what he's saying because if you do, there's a woe. <laughs> there's a woe. Now, I want you to look. There's a comparison in verse 2. Look at that. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, look at this next word. Than. Do you see that? Than offend one of these. He is saying, he's making a comparison here. You would be better off. You have to think what he's saying here about this millstone. <clears throat> Most... Things like, well, let me tell you what a millstone is. Hey, that's not the point what a millstone is. The point's the comparison. The point's the comparison. It would be better to face a premature death. Than to offend one of these least types of people. It would be better to be like Jimmy Hoffa. With a cement block around your neck and die before your time. Mm -hmm. Now listen to what he said. That would be better than to offend one of these people like the rich man did and got what he got, which was to lift up his eyes in torment. You'd be better off dying right now at the age of 40, 50, 60, 70. Before your time, in the worst circumstances, than to offend somebody and end up like the rich man in hell. That's the teaching that Jesus is giving here. As tragic a death as a premature death is, that would be better than what the rich man got. Now look at verse 3. This is the key verb right here. This is where he, this is the whole this is the 
the verb right here that drives the text. Take heed to yourselves. That's the message he wants every one of us to watch out. Take heed for who? For yourselves. Hey, this isn't against the rich man. Guess who it's, he's talking to? Talking to us. He's talking to those who call themselves disciples that are following Jesus. This is the instruction that drives the passage. Take heed. Watch out. Guard yourselves. Be on guard. Be on guard for what? That you don't offend the least of these. Now, that's not the only thing we have to be on guard for. Because that verb, guard yourself, doesn't only apply to offending people. It applies to what comes after. Now look at the end of verse 3. Very interesting. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. That's the first if. That's the first if. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. Here's the second if. And if he repents, forgive him. The first if, confront him. The second if, if he repents, restore him. Confront him. Restore him. Watch out. Be on guard. This is how you're to act. Not like the elder brother. Who, when the prodigal son came home, and he confronted him okay, he did that the first time when the brother was leaving. He confronted him, but when he came home, he didn't restore him. When he wanted to repent, he didn't restore him. See, not like the rich man and Lazarus, not like the elder brother toward the prodigal son. Does that make sense? See, that's the context here. So what he says is, confront confrontation and restoration. Why do we do this? If he repents, we forgive him. Why do we forgive him? Because God forgives us. Have we offended God? Has he forgiven us? Amen. When we said, Lord, I'm sorry, did he say, okay, I forgive you? Didn't Jesus say earlier in Luke, our Father, which art in heaven, forgive us our trespasses as we what? Forgive those that trespass against us. See, this is what a Christian looks like. A Christian is a person that doesn't take advantage of the least and the lowest. The Christian is not like the rich man and Lazarus. The Christian is like Mother Teresa and Lazarus. The rich man is not like, I mean, the Christian is not like the elder son or a Pharisee. Remember, they complained about Jesus. That he ate with sinners. And that's when Jesus told the story of the prodigal son. Prodigal son came home, and guess what the father did? Threw a feast. But what did the elder brother do? Didn't eat with him. Wouldn't forgive him. Wouldn't restore him. Don't be like that. That's not what a follower of Jesus looks like. So, he says, take heed to yourselves. Okay? Take heed to yourselves. Now look at verse 4. And if he sins against you... Seven times in a day, and seven times a day returns to you saying, I repent, you ought to forgive him. 
You should forgive him. What do you think about forgiving him? Let's all who want to forgive him vote. No. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times a day returns and says, I repent, you should, shall forgive him. You shall forgive him. This is a command. This is our obligation. This is how we are to live as Christians. You know, over in the Matthew passage in Matthew 16, Jesus says, forgive. And Peter says, how many? Seven? And Jesus says, what? Seventy times seven. It's just unlimited. Okay? It is that we are to continually forgive. Forgiveness should be a characteristic of the Christian life. We're to continually be forgiven. Why? Because God continually forgives us. We sin against him every single day. Do you think we sin against God maybe seven times a day? Do you think we have maybe seven bad thoughts? I think we do it seven times seven. He just forgives and forgives and forgives and forgives. And we are to reflect the nature of God in this sense. We're not to be like the elder brother. We're not to be like the Pharisee. Okay, now the next discussion. Look at verse 5. Verse 5. And the apostle said to the Lord, now remember the context, what he's talking about here, increase our faith. Now, first of all, I want you to notice who's speaking now in verse 5. Oh, now we're going to narrow it down to the faithful 12 apostles. He's been speaking to the larger crowd called disciples, and now the 12 pipe up, and they say, Lord, verse 5, increase our faith. In the context, what they're saying is help us. We need your help. To do what you're asking us to do is impossible. <laughs> we can't do that. Uh, would you increase our faith? Or better off, and better yet, would be to increase our ability, increase our faithfulness, that we'll be able to do these things that you're asking which seem so impossible. Now notice in verse 5, they're interested in their quantity of faith. Give us more faith. Boy, to do what you're asking us to do, we're going to need more faith to do that. And uh, Jesus really isn't concerned about how much faith you really have. He said it really doesn't take much faith to do this. Look at verse 6. So the Lord said, If you have the faith of a mustard seed, which was considered at that time the very smallest plant or seed in existence. If you have just a smidgen of faith, a teeny-weeny portion of faith, like a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, pull up, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Notice it's not the size of your faith that does the impossible. It's just the exercise of your faith. Not the size of your faith that produces the impossible. It's the exercise of your faith. No matter how small that does the impossible. So, how do I treat one of these little ones the correct way? can't do that. Just get everything in my nature to help those people. How can I forgive Seventy times seven, that's just against everything in my nature. Lord, give me more faith. He said, you don't need, it's not the size of your faith, you need to exercise your faith. Just do it. And you'll be able to do it. Now, notice, you know, over in the Mark, Mark passage, there's a 
Jesus uses a very similar wording in where he talks about moving a mountain, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. Now here it's a mulberry tree, or possibly a sycamore tree. We're not sure exactly which one it is, uh, because the translators are the ones that are translating it in the King James Bible back in you know, 1609 or 11. They said mulberry tree, but it's possibly a sycamore tree, but we don't even know. I know this. For me to pull up a tree that's rooted in the ground, by my own strength, I can't do it. Now, if it's just been planted, that's another story. This is a, this is a tree that's rooted. I can't pick up a tree. Now, when I was a teenager, I used to work for the State Roads Commission back in Baltimore, Maryland, and we went out and we planted trees along the highway. It was part of the highway beautification program. Remember that? And uh, I would water the trees, and they'd be planted, and I'd water them, and then uh, we'd put wires and poles next to them to strengthen them. And, but sometimes they would die, and I would just pull them down because they didn't have any roots. But once the tree was rooted, and it was about six or years old, or six months old or so, I couldn't pull it out anymore. It was impossible. Now, this is even more impossible. He said, with just a smidgen of faith, you can say to the tree, uproot yourself. Hey, hop out of the ground. And that tree will hop out of the ground and it'll go like this and walk over toward the sea and plant itself again. Now that's really impossible. See? Now Jesus is using hyperbole here. Hyperbole is a figure of speech for the point of driving, driving the lesson home. So what lesson is he saying? Hey, even a smidgen of faith, if it's exercised, can do the impossible. God never asks you to do something that you can't do. Now look at verse 7. And which of you, now he's going to ask a whole series of questions which are very interesting to drive the point home. He says, uh, which of you, having a servant, plowing or tending sheep, and he's just going to use an illustration of the dead. He's going to talk about a person who has a servant or a slave. And he's going to use this illustration to drive the point home. Each one of these questions, the answer is obvious. So watch this. Which one of you, having a servant, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Hey, come in at once. Sit down. Here, sit at my table and eat. Is that what people say? No one would say that. In Jesus' day, the typical person that owned a slave. Verse 8. But, will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my dinner? Hey, it's dinner time, I need some food. Hey, slave, prepare something for my dinner. And gird yourselves and serve me until I've eaten and I've drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink. Yeah, that's more likely, isn't it? That's how you would treat a slave. That's how it works. Look at verse 9. Does he thank the slave? Because he did things that were commanded of him? I think not. You don't thank a slave. He's doing what's expected of him. You don't reward a slave. The work of a slave isn't rewarded. He doesn't even get a paycheck, a slave. That's what's expected of a slave. You see, you don't say thank you, slave. When the slave fixed a master's supper... That doesn't obligate the master to the slave. 
Doesn't mean that I have to pay him back. He fixed my supper. Well, guess what? On Saturday, I'll fix your supper, slave. That's not how the master-slave system worked in Jesus' day. It wasn't how it worked in the South either, was it? The slave is simply doing what he's obligated to do. The slave is simply doing what is expected of him because he is a slave. Now look at verse 10. Here is the application. So likewise you. Now remember what he's been talking about. He's been talking about not offending people. He's been talking about forgiving people. He's been talking about how we act toward people. Now he uses the slave and master. The slave's not to be thanked. The slave's not to be paid. The slave's not to doesn't put the master under obligation. He's just doing what is expected of him. Expected of him. Verse 10. So likewise you, when you have done all the things which you are commanded. What things? The things that we've just been reading about. The things that deal with the kingdom. The things that advance the kingdom of God. Like treating others kindly like caring for the poor, like being just toward people, like forgiving people 70 times 7, like not offending the people. See? That's what he's saying. Look at verse 10. So likewise you, when you've done those things which are commanded, say, here's what you should say after you've done all that, we're unprofitable servants. That's what you should say. After you've done everything that God commands you, say, we're unprofitable servants. We have done what was our what? Duty to do. <clears throat> what Jesus is asking us to do isn't something extraordinary. This is what is expected of a bond slave toward Jesus Christ. When we do these things, and if you're like me when I do them, I sort of sense that I should be rewarded for doing something like <laughs> But he says, well, after you've done it, you should say, I'm just an unprofitable slave. <laughs> We've done what our duty is to do. We don't do it for a reward. We don't do it. When we do it, that doesn't make God now obligated to us. We do it because this is what a Christian while she or he is on earth. This is what we do. We do what Jesus did. Did he get a reward for it? When Jesus healed somebody, did he expect them to pay him back? When we do for something for somebody, do we expect them to pay us back? Do we expect somebody to pat us on the back? Oh, that was a good deed, Al Street. That's what he's saying. The things that he's asking us, well, the things that they say, man, we need more faith to do this. Don't you say you don't need more faith? You just need to exercise your faith. You just need to do it. This is what God commands you. He's already given you the faith to do it. Do it, and when you do it, don't think you need a pat on the back. Don't think you need to be paid back. Don't think that that obligates God toward you. You're just doing what is your duty. This is what a disciple of Christ looks like. And God expects us to show compassion 
on people and act justly. Now, remember I told you there was one driving verb there that just controlled the whole passage. And that's take guard to yourself. Watch out for yourself. Why, does that, why is that the driving verb? Because in light of all this, guess what we're to do? We're to examine ourselves and say, does this look like me? Do I do the things that Jesus was discussing here? Does this reflect my behavior? Be on guard. Because you don't want to end up like the rich man. I, in fact, it would be better right now if you just had a premature death than that. Be on guard. You say, well, my life is falling far short. Then Jesus says, guess what? Just get to it. Just get to it. And then when you do it, there's no place for boasting because you're doing it by faith, which God gives you anyway, you see. And when you do it, then God gets the praise. He gets the praise for it because you don't want any credit for it. You're doing it in the name of Jesus. So who gets the praise? Jesus gets the praise and you get the joy of service. And that's what Jesus is saying right here in light of the context. We'll pick up next week with the healing of the ten lepers. The healing of the ten lepers. Father, we thank you for uh, this passage of Scripture. Because once again, it just shows us how we fall short, and yet it gives us a picture of what a Christian is to be like. And Lord, that's what we want. We want to be like Jesus. When we look at Jesus, we see that he never offended the down and out, the people who couldn't help them, help themselves. He lifted them up. He raised them up to the next level. He looked at them and had compassion on them, and he embraced them, and he loved them, and he helped them, and he healed them. And he entrusted his mission to them. And, Lord, we're to do the same thing. Help us to realize that we need to be compassionate toward people. Uh, so often we can be religious and we can be right, and we can be hold to the correct doctrinal beliefs and still not reflect the spirit of Christ. Help us not to be like the Pharisees. Help us not to be self-consumed. Help us, Lord, to be consumed in helping others. Help us not to be people who hold grudges like the elder brother. But, Lord, help us to be people that reach out in forgiveness. Help us to rejoice when somebody whether it's someone like the pastor talked about today or somebody who has been entrapped in alcoholism or is facing bankruptcy and poverty, when they get out of that, may we rejoice. May we be a means to help them to live above their circumstances. May we be people who forgive and are compassionate. May we be like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.